No one who on screen or stage saw the late Richard Griffiths play the schoolteacher Hector in Alan Bennett's The History Boys will easily forget the drummer Hodge scene. One-to-one -one with his most responsive pupil, Posner, Hector explains Thomas Hardy's poem about a teenage soldier of Wessex killed in the Boer War. They throw in drummer Hodge to rest uncoffined, just as found. Hector tells us that the anonymous bones of thousands of British soldiers were actually swept up en masse from the battlefields of 19th century Europe by a Yorkshire fertiliser firm. But the uniqueness of Thomas Hardy's drummer Hodge is that his individual identity is what matters most of all. Lost boy, Hardy writes, though he is on the other side of the world, still he has a name. Except, of course, that he didn't. At the time of Hardy's poem, Hodge, as Bennett later acknowledged, Hodge simply meant any old country bumpkin, Joe Bloggs with a straw in his mouth. Even at the turn of the 20th century, Hardy can't yet quite find a real person in the generic casualty of war, even though, and I quote, a portion of that unknown plain will Hodge forever be. Two decades later, of course, we knew the names of the dead. They had acquired a hallowed significance in the cult of sacrifice that took hold of Britain in the aftermath of the First World War. By the time that Reginald Blomfield's Memorial to the Missing was inaugurated at the Menning Gate at Ypres in 1927, a decade of debate and agitation had settled into consensus about the art and rituals of remembrance. All agreed that the names of the lost should take pride of place. At the Menning Gate, the Hall of Memory records 54,896 British and Empire troops to whom, in Rudyard Kipling's words on the inscription, the fortune of war had denied a known and honoured burial. Even if they lacked a grave, the Hodges of the First World War filed name by name through the national consciousness, a legion of troubling ghosts. They are still trampling through our lives today. Such is the power of remembering. To the poet and Western Front survivor Siegfried Sassoon, one of the authors whose sorrow, rage and pity did so much to fix later attitudes to the Great War, the Menning Gate was no more than a sepulchre of crime, though in this respect the Sassoon's view had not prevailed. Even people who accept the now orthodox verdict on 1914-18 as a genocidal folly in which the vain deluded all men of a doomed ruling class slew half the seed of Europe one by one, still find themselves touched by memorials. And I wonder why. Well, it is, I think, the studied absence of triumphalism that matters above all. The British architecture of remembrance does not, as a rule, celebrate victory. Neither does it trade in windy patriotic abstractions. From Ypres to the smallest of the 54,000-odd subscription-raised local war memorials in Britain, it identifies and honours individuals. Their name liveth forevermore 
Beckett playing the literary architect of Great World War memory in Britain, himself chose that phrase from the book of Ecclesiasticus as a standard inscription for stones of remembrance, as he called them. The insistence on naming the dead, preserved in the ritual of reading a roll call of the fallen in schools and churches and elsewhere, brings home the paradox that the age of industrial-scale slaughter has coincided with the age of mass democracy. Hodge and his successors died in hitherto unimaginable numbers too, but for the first time in our history, at least we knew precisely who they were. Lists of the lost have become a mainstay of memorial projects all around the world. In Prague, no part of the Jewish Museum leaves a stronger impression than the wall of the Pinker Synagogue that carries the name of Czech Jews murdered in the Holocaust. In Washington, D.C., the Vietnam Veterans Memorial, a wall that heals, it claims, records over 58,000 U.S. victims of the war on its black stone. The National Memorial Arboretum in Staffordshire features at its heart an armed forces monument unveiled by the Queen in 2007. Its carved walls bear the details of more than 15,000 British personnel killed in action since 1945. It also hosts an annual reading of the names. Look at the list of conflicts in which they died and you see that the military circumstances remain as divisive as the bloodbaths of the Somme and Passchendaele. From Palestine and Malaya to Iraq and Afghanistan, the roster of battlegrounds can be interpreted as a litany of late imperial overreach and blunder and delusion and recklessness, a roll call of national folly. Yet the classical sobriety of the design and the simple carved presence of so many individuals dissolves any urge to dissent. In another scene in the History Boys, Irwin, the teacher hired to get the boys through their Oxbridge entrance exams, walks them over to the town war memorial. There, he says cynically, it's not so much lest we forget as lest we remember. So far as the cenotaph and the last post and all that stuff is concerned, there's no better way of forgetting something than by commemorating it. This year, Bennett's words through Irwin have rung a bell with me. On this Remembrance Sunday, we should be clear that we are remembering and not commemorating. The ongoing power of this annual act of national reconciliation and re recollection, the power of our local cenotaphs, war memorials and rolls of honour carved in stone, is, I think, mainly due to our British way of remembering people and family and community, a particularly gentle, reflective and dignified remembering that avoids all sense of triumphalism that is simply commemorating a war or a conflict. You might therefore assume rightly that I am not too fond of celebrating anniversaries of battles, but we must remember people, that is good, and not commemorate warfare. One of the popular hymns at this time of year is I Vow to Thee My Country. It's a not uncommon hymn at remembrance services all over the nation. The hymn, which combines the words of a poem by British diplomat Sir Cecil Springrice, 
with that beautiful tune by Gustav Holst is enormously popular and having been sung at both the wedding and funeral of Princess Diana, it has become cherished by many. But these qualities should not mask something dubious about it. I vow to thee, my country, all earthly things above, entire and whole and perfect, the sacrifice of my love, the love that asks no question, the love that stands the test, that lays upon the altar the dearest and the best, the love that never falters, the love that pays the price, the love that makes undaunted the final sacrifice. It is telling that these words were written in 1908, before the First World War. They could not have been written after it. The idea of promising to show a love for our country which asks no questions and undauntedly sacrifices people is, I think, definitely dodgy especially in the light of the abomination of the Holocaust, Passchendaele and the Somme. Being swept up in the commemorating of a national cause puts at risk our proper appropriate remembering in the Christian sense. No one can be but deeply critical of the injustices and pomposity of our own country and the follies it is engaged in over the years. There is nothing Christian about keeping an unquestioning silence in the face of national hatred and unmitigated slaughter. In his essay, The Lion and the Unicorn, George Orwell wrote these words, and I quote, In England, such concepts as justice, liberty and objective truth are still believed in. The belief influences conduct. National life is different because of them. For him, it is these values, these strengths, that made our country worth fighting for against the tyranny of Nazism. For Orwell, not a friend of Christianity, it has to be said, and so perhaps also for us, the kind of patriotic remembering we need today will hold intention, both an appreciation of individual sacrifice and a robust critique of national policy. Stung by the Christian critique of his poem at the end of the First World War, Cecil Springrice wrote an additional verse which is far less jingoistic and sadly, and perhaps tellingly, never actually sung today. This is verse 3. I heard my country calling away across the sea, across the waste of waters she calls and calls to me. Her sword is girded at her side, her helmet on her head, and round her feet are lying the dying and the dead. I hear the noise of battle, the thunder of her guns. I haste to thee, my mother, a son among thy sons. This verse at least reflects something of the terrible reality, the awful moral ambiguity of being loyal to one's country in the midst of war. It is a reality which should daunt us. It is a sentiment which is captured by the blood-swept lands and seas of red at the Tower of London a couple of years ago. Seeing the vast sweep of red poppies and hearing the names of the soldiers killed being read along with intensely powerful and moving words was indeed an awe 
inspiring moment. As the last lone bugler played the last post, he embodied the words of Spring Rice's unused verse, as around his feet lay the thousands of flowers representing the dead. Our message at this remembrance tide, our Christian message, is that we are proud to remember those individuals whose names appear on memorials all over the country. But we do not commemorate the folly of war that necessitated their sacrifice in the first place. Thomas Hardy published Drummer Hodge late in 1899. Effectively, it took more than a century for the common soldier to require not just a stone or a name, but a voice that people heard and listened to. For many who remember this weekend, that will be their best memorial.